Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. All right. Welcome back to our weekly edition of This Believe Land is Your Land. This is your host, Josh Finney. I'm joined, as I always am here, by Mike Krupka and John Colosimo. Nailed it. God, it's two weeks in a row. We're getting really good. <laughs> I actually, I appreciated that I heard you on um, the Paul Brown podcast, and he just completely butchered it. And you were like, no, that's right, man. Good job. I'm, 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 I guess there was like some, I'm just going to like handicap you. Like, you're probably going to butcher this no matter what. I'm not going to make an issue of it. But I appreciated your uh, being a good dude and not giving a hard time about it. That was pretty so, much how it went, too, yeah. That was so old Browns of you, John. <laughs> <laughs> just take it and roll over, just like the old Browns. Um, we are coming to you live uh, right after the Browns just absolutely demolished the Cincinnati Bengals this weekend in what was ultimately the most entertaining Browns football game, I think, maybe, that I've ever seen. A lot of people talked about that Monday night game uh, in 2008 against the reigning champion New York Giants as being one of the most fun ones. As far as um, expectations going in and all the and all the talk and all the things that were going on, this was the week for me where it was the, the Browns came out saying they were going to do something, and then they backed it up with their play, which was really, really fun to watch. I really enjoyed it. Um, I was kind of driving back from Cleveland and frantically trying to watch it on my phone through the wilderness of Pennsylvania so the, the signal wasn't always great and and I was missing out on what had to have been an enormous uh enormously fun uh, social media explosion as that game was going on were you guys settled in and able to watch and enjoy it properly or, or were you guys also on the road coming back from Thanksgiving I uh so interestingly enough I kind of am taking a, a sabbatical from social media during the games because I find myself getting wrapped up too much in that instead of just enjoying the day so I, I did pop in smart. here and there, but I was Very also smart. reminded that I'm, I'm not supposed to be doing that. But uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it properly. Um, had a couple Bloody Marys over here. And to, to your point, I, I have to agree, it was one of the most exciting games that I can remember watching just from a, a pure offensive standpoint. It was, it was great watching Baker execute, watching the team kind of take on a new identity and this new brand that we continue to talk about here on the podcast together was uh, on full display. So um, definitely – one of the, the most exciting games that I can remember watching. Yeah, what, do you, what about you, John? Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. You know, I was able to watch with my family. I kind of planned the vacation so that we – well, there was two purposes of leaving Monday. So we left Monday morning. One, because the traffic coming back from Cleveland right after Thanksgiving, like on that Sunday, is absolutely horrendous. Oh, it's so bad. It is. It's so um, bad. So one was avoiding that, and then the second was getting to watch the game with uh, my brothers and my family. So we stayed until Monday. So I got to enjoy the whole thing, which um, included watching that with uh, with my dad, who 
um, still is not a hundred percent on the Baker train. So oh. it was kind of fun wow. to, uh, to watch that unfold. And yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, Brown scored five touchdowns on their first five, you know, full drives. There was that one drive up at the half, but you don't have to count that necessarily, you know, with, with time not constricted, I think it was five for five touchdowns. It was pretty incredible to watch. Uh, even that game, like the one I always go back to is the uh, Thursday Cincy game, which was a beatdown. Yeah, they, you know, when they put them at eight to four in the, in the 2014 season. Right, and something ridiculous like 70-some percent to make the playoffs, which they managed to fit themselves into that 26%. <laughs> um, yeah, they, uh, I've never quite seen anything like that. Uh, not five for five touchdowns, just total beat down, you know, for two and a third or half quarters. Uh, it was a freaking blast to watch. So I am very disappointed to hear that you had to try and catch that on your phone through the hills of uh, – of PA there where I know that it notoriously has awful reception. Yeah. Sometimes no service at all. They're going to get the internet in Pennsylvania at some point. I'm very excited for them when they get to that point. Um, <laughs> I know your dad is like the, the local folk hero for the Paul Brown podcast now after his random appearance. He's um, famous, which I thought was great. I thought that his answer, if you guys haven't heard it, you definitely need to tune in to the uh, post Thanksgiving episode of the Paul Brown show. Um, John's dad uh, happened to be rolling by the video chat and he, he asked him for his take. And, and they were talking about what limbs they'd give up for, for a Brown Super Bowl. Um, and John, like, was a good sport about it. He was like, I don't know, like, might give up a pinky. Like, I'm, in my head, I'm like, say, like, your spleen or your appendix or something useless. Like, throw something in here. And, and John's dad gets asked that question in deadpans, and it's just like, I'm pretty old. Like, I don't care. Take what you want. Like, I'm here for the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty great. He he was actually like uh, surprised that they kept it. He was thinking that they would cut it. I'm like, I'm telling you right now, I would never cut that bit if it was my show. So right. you're gonna be on it. So he he really got a kick out of listening to himself uh, the next day. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. So so why is why is he off of the the Baker wagon? Why isn't he into this? You know, I think he uh, I think he watches maybe too much NFL network or ESPN draft coverage. And uh, there was all those, you know, and I think, uh, I think that's maybe 15% of it. And then I think it's 85% pure Johnny PTSD, you know, where it just was severely affecting like how he was able to see what the situation, uh, what their abilities really were, because, you know, we're not seeing a Baker that's any different than we saw at Oklahoma. So none of this is surprising. You know, it's so the only way that you could look at this and think that you're surprised by it is is just if you were looking through some very foggy glasses and and just speaking from a a position of pain, having had to live through the Johnny Manziel era and have another Southern quarterback with a with an attitude, because that's about all they have in common. So. Right on. Mike, I know your, uh, your family's really into the Browns too. I love all your, your tailgate pictures from your, your annual uh, sojourn up to Mecca there in Cleveland. Um, is, your, is your family all bought in at this point? Are you guys a hive mind on, on Baker or are you still trying to convince in that life? Yeah, that was interesting. Last, last year, so 2017, um, when I was at home, I was at home in November and for Thanksgiving <clears throat> actually and was having this conversation that I thought Baker Mayfield was going to be you know, a, a pretty badass quarterback. And my dad and my brother kind of both rolled their eyes and were like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then as the draft process went along, I kept on preaching to them. I'm like, guys, I'm telling you, man, this guy is, is good. And my brother started to catch up a little bit and he got on board before the season. 
And then my dad, finally, when I was just home, he was all about it. He, he's bought in. We're all bought in. We're all on the Baker train. And yeah. uh, it's, it's an exciting time. I'm sure a little bit of this is generational. I think it's easier for um, young people to look at the, uh, the swag that the Baker Mayfield brings and say, um, you know, I'm okay with this. I think that um, the older you get, the less into the shenanigans that, that, that come along with it that, that people are. So I'm sure there's a little bit of a generational thing um, between how people uh, accept Baker Mayfield, but, but it's good to see your family getting on board with it. Well, what's uh, interesting is, uh, you know, people want to call the, you know, Baker Mayfield shenanigans back when he was in college and, you know, planting the flag and all these different things. Mm. But when we go back and we look at what happened this weekend, I think a majority of the fans who through the draft process may have been against it or been like, Oh, I can't believe this guy's grabbing his crotch or planting the flag. They're all about the Baker Mayfield that we saw this weekend in the post game, in the game. They're, they're all about, you know, this new type of leadership and this new type of buy-in for, for the Browns. And it's an interesting thing, right? When you, you see him in college, they're like, Oh, we, we don't like this, but now that it's happening. And some of us, I, I know I had some conversations on Twitter about this, like guys, I'm telling you, like, him grabbing his crotch and playing the flag is not going to matter. The guys in the NFL locker room are going to love that. And, and so it's, it's interesting to see how that's all transpiring right now. Yeah. And I'm with you. And I was one of these guys that, that wasn't into the shenanigans and the outbursts and the, the junk grabbing and the throwing footballs at the other team as they're running through the, uh, the warm-up lines and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. Like at the end of the day, uh, we're so, we're so starved for this kind of play that I don't, I don't think I really care. I don't think most fans really care. Um, Baker Mayfield's always going to be extra. And in this case, like Baker Mayfield being extra is galvanizing to his team. It's galvanizing to his players. And John Ledyard wrote a great piece today. If you guys haven't seen it, um, it's, it's definitely worth the read where he says that that is going to be galvanizing and that he's going to be honest. And that's going to be the honest in, in, uh, impression of himself. None of this is, is for show. None of it is uh, a, a play acting. It is honestly him reacting to the situation and, and being who he is. Uh, and it's always been authentic and he's always been, be loved by the people that surround him in those locker rooms. So at the end of the day, it's going to be a polarizing force. It's going to be something that just like with Johnny Manziel, that people look forward to trying to wipe the smile off of his face. They're going to look forward to trying to beat him. There's going to be a little extra pep in people's step, but I don't think anybody cares as long as he's playing like this. No, I agree. Uh, and, and I think that's a, that one of the big departures, like throwing everything on the field off. I think that's the, you know, one of the main differences, you know, Johnny Manziel, Anybody can tell you, especially Clevelanders, that uh, he always said the right stuff in an interview, right? Yeah. He, you know, he always sounded contrite when he screwed up. He um, always said that, you know, he was, uh, you know, one way as far as uh, coming in and doing the work and things like that. What he actually did with his actions was 100% different than what you got in those interviews. Uh, and that's, you know, speaking off field only, you know, that's one of your major departures, in fact, polar opposites between what you have between him and Baker Mayfield because Baker Mayfield backs it up. He's there early. He puts in the work um, and he backs it up on the field um, and it shows, you know, and that's why his teammates back him, you know, because, you know, he might say something stupid or go a little over the top. Uh, he's probably going to do that many times over his career. But, you know, it's, it's that difference that makes – uh, his team willing or not willing to help cash that check. You know, if you get me on that, you know, yeah. he, that that's the real buy-in. That's the real difference. That's why it's going to be okay. Because you know what, uh, because he's the player he is, because he puts in that work, because his teammates believe in him, 
they are really willing to help cash the checks that Baker Mayfield writes no matter what. So uh, that's what I'm looking forward to over the course of his career. Yeah, and you heard that today with the, uh, the interview with Smith, um, Brown's defensive lineman. He came and he said, look, like, I would have kept that private. Like, a lot of the comments that Baker's made over the course of the week that we're going to talk about here in a minute, I would have kept that to myself. But I'm willing to run through a brick wall for Baker. And if he says that we're mad about this, we're mad about this. And it really it infected the locker room. Uh, it isn't – I don't think they need it to get up, but they used it to get up for this week. And the, the comment from Demarius Randall of there was no way we're going to lose this game. There's no way we were losing this game. Um, that starts at the top. And that, and that started with Baker Mayfield. And, and it led to the Browns coming out of the gate and absolutely dump trucking uh, the Cincinnati Bengals this week. We know that you, the listener, has heard a thousand different recaps. So we'll, we'll spare you the play-by-play of what happened. But suffice it to say that the, the Cleveland Browns, when they were trying – when they were giving it their all in that first half, it was a hot knife through butter. And, and that Bengals defense has been atrocious uh, for the last four or five games. Uh, but they made it look easy. They made it look like a Big 12 football game, the way that they just casually moved down the field. And you can really see in the moments of those drives, the game really slowing down for Baker Mayfield and for the offense just absolutely gaining confidence by the minute. The things that were holding the offense back that weren't schematic at the beginning of the year were drops, misassignments, and, and uh, penalties. And you just see a completely different team out there. You see guys executing and doing their jobs individually because Greg Williams has instilled a attitude where you are going to do your job or you're going to be off the field, that you're going to be held accountable, you're going to be held responsible. And he's finally put in a, a, some measure of discipline for this team that they know that they can't do the same kind of things that they were doing. They can't miss assignments. They have to execute at their own level. So you're seeing guys – doing their jobs, you're seeing the wide receivers making catches, you're seeing the, the linemen making blocks, being able to, to power through the second level, and it's just making everything work. And you're just seeing a synergy that was completely lacking. And, and even when you were playing bad defenses early in the year, the teams that you're supposed to, to beat, there was always mental mistakes that kept uh, drives from being sustainable. There was always something, a, a holding penalty, a critical drop on third down, there's always something keeping them down. And you just don't see that anymore. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would just make a quick comment here about – uh, it, it seems like we went through the last couple of years, uh, you know, if you imagine this as a, a job that you may have had <laughs> since, you, since you've entered the professional world, uh, it's like a company without a, an employee handbook, you know, or a mission <laughs> statement. That's basically what this has been like. No handbook, no mission statement, uh, just um, some loose guidelines that aren't uh, standard across the players. And that's the, the ship that he ran. And now what we're seeing is that uh, there's an employee handbook. There's a mission statement, and people are held accountable. Uh, and there's a big difference when it comes to that. And I think we're seeing that on Sundays. Yeah, and unfortunately, part of that employee handbook is that we're going to have a very clearly defined idea of what we're going to do should we get into the lead, should we uh, get into the second half nursing a two-touchdown or, or more lead. Because now we have back-to-back games in which the team has gotten into that stance. They've gotten into that situation. They clearly have no idea – how to go about executing that part of the employee handbook. Uh, I personally think that even when you are trying to uh, mitigate having a rookie quarterback and a young team and a team that's prone to making mistakes, that there are better ways to, to kind of run the clock out. Mike, how did you feel watching the second half of that game? Yeah, I was a little perplexed in, in one of the, one of those weak moments in my social media uh, presence on Sunday between, you know, you and I, Josh, we were talking about this with – it may have been Matt, it may have been Chris over at Dogs by Nature, but we were talking about maybe them not executing versus them just 
kind of switching their whole philosophy. And as that half kind of played itself out, yeah, I mean, it was very clear that that was their strategy is to just protect the lead to kind of uh, pack it in and just play very conservative. They ran the ball a lot. It, it was a little frustrating, to be honest. I, I didn't quite understand it at the time. I mean, I, I guess I do get it, but I would like to see the team continue that aggression somewhat, at least in the second half, um, you know, not take the, their foot totally off the, the pedal and, and kind of press and, and just continue to force, I guess, the, the, the defense to, to have time and, and get a break. So I wasn't a big fan of it at the time, but I, I definitely understand it in, in the long term. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what we do in these situations down the stretch if, if we find ourselves there again. Yeah, personally, um, I was upset with it, you know, to just uh, crush it for the first five drives and then uh, complete. And it, this isn't just subjective, you know. I mean, you can see it in the play calling. You can see how we're yep. running on first and second down all the time. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't trying to take it. And this is a Cincinnati team that was clearly trying to sell out to stop Chubb. And uh, that was why we were able to exploit them so well in that first half through the passing game. Uh, they didn't change in the second half. We just changed. And we just started to, to, you know, pack it in and try and ride the, you know, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a 32-point lead. It might have been a 32-point I don't know if it was 35-3 to three or 35-7. to seven. I don't have that in front of me. But it was funny, too. I, I listened to, and I'll do this once in a while. Uh, I want to hear the other perspective. So I listened to a couple of Cincy podcasts uh, on Sunday and Monday. And uh, it's funny when you listen to them talk about it, there's no mention of uh, the Browns changing strategy and trying to pack it in. It's like the Bengals uh, clawed their way back into the game. They found something. Right. That's right. And that's just not what happened. Like the, the Browns offense really just, and this is now we have a pattern. We've got two weeks in a row that we established a lead and we acted as such, you know, we, we tried to run clock out and stuff. This is not college football. Uh, you know, let's, let's go. Then this is a young team too. Why not get the practice now there? Yeah. You know, I did think to myself that maybe um, we might've not installed enough stuff to, uh, to want to run some of the same things. As the, as the game plan goes on. But then again, if we didn't have a full game's worth of, of the material, then, then that would be a mistake as well. So uh, I can only think that they were trying to run the clock out. What did you think, Mike? I also kind of wondered if, if maybe it was Coach Williams trying to establish an identity with, you know, with the lead. We're going to be a, a, we're gonna pound the ball down your throat. We're going to you know, just beat you up through the run game. I, I don't know. That's the only other thing I could think is just trying to continue to establish an identity with Chubb in the second half, continue to give him the ball to see if we can exploit the weakness that, that, that we had, um, you know, against the, the, the front seven, if you will, of Cincinnati. Uh, but yeah, I agree. I, I just, I think you got to keep Baker Mayfield involved and quite honestly, why not let him throw six touchdowns? You know, why not put up 45 points? I, I have no problem with that and hand the, and, and hand the ball to Hugh. do it all. Yeah. The, <laughs> the good, the good teams in the league continue to operate their offense uh, when they get up. They don't uh, completely change yep. their identity. And this isn't a Browns team whose identity is being able to run it down defense's throats when they know the run is coming. They just can't. They haven't been able to with better offensive lines than the one they have this year. Uh, they're, they're getting a great year from their interior offensive line. And Greg Robinson has been better than what we've had uh, over, the last couple year, over the last couple weeks. But this is a team that isn't – a run blocking team. This isn't a, 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 a power run blocking team. They're at their best when they're moving 
when they are uh, executing zone blocked runs and when the defense can't sit on the run. When the Browns run deliberately from from uh, very obvious running situations and sets, they get hammered. And that was part of the problem with Tyrod Taylor playing quarterback is that the defenses were just run block, run blitzing the line every play because they knew that Tyrod Taylor wasn't going to beat them in the intermediate part of the field. And the Browns don't have the kind of uh, line that can that can run in those kind of situations. So as soon as they went into that mode, it was basically just hanging on for dear life. I didn't think there was a lot of lessons to be learned. I didn't think there was a lot of uh, things that they were working out at that point. I think that the Browns wanted to make sure that they came out of there with a win. They wanted to maintain the confidence that they developed in the first half and that they knew as long as they, they played the percentages there, they'd be fine. That's a good defense uh, that Cleveland has this year. And they knew they were going to be able to keep uh, Jeff Driscoll from making the game interesting. Um, and maybe the strategy is a little bit different there if uh, Andy Dalton is still around. But either way, I would have liked to have seen them continue to use clock, continue to run the ball, continue to use the field, but still remain unpredictable. And once they made, got predictable, and they were very predictable. They were running a lot of halfback dives with uh, Orson Charles leading the way right up the middle. Not a lot of counter movement, not a lot of uh, things trying to throw the defense off. It was very obvious and it was defensed in a very obvious way. And to get a little nerdy just for a second, it's, you know, yeah, the, it <laughs> uh, you know, the, the data shows that uh, the running game is largely a function of men in the box versus blockers. All right. And so not only uh, is it a predictable type thing, but uh, if you're running with against bad numbers, you're going to get bad results. And it just seems to be that way. No matter who the running back is, uh, you're just you're not setting yourself up for success. So um, it's just bad if you're if you're going to run against, uh, you know, any kind of a it doesn't matter, you know, it, like, like I said, uh, you know, if you're running against an eight-man front with seven blockers, if you're running, uh, you know, against a seven-man box versus six blockers, like the running back doesn't tend to make a massive difference in that. It's bad to run when you're a negative in those types of in-the-box numbers. And uh, that's what we're seeing. And, and they can't expect different results than what you got. And to do that for a half a quarter is fine. To do that for one and a half quarters uh you get a mail it in like you know the the experience from two and a half quarters into the game to the rest of the game that last quarter and a half was just a very different fan experience you know yeah. uh, we knew it was going to happen we knew we weren't scoring the ball we knew we weren't trying to score the ball and uh, that's just us sitting at home watching uh, the telecast so since he knew what the hell was going on. So uh, I just don't want to see that going forward. Um, Mike, you already touched on what had to have been one of my favorite Browns moments of all time in this game. And that was uh, Demarius Randall appearing to have a little bit of space to try and cut the ball upfield and, and, and get some extra yardage on his interception, but instead choosing to walk the ball to the sideline and hand it to one uh, Hugh Jackson. Uh, I honestly can't think of anything that's more fun in that moment than executing it that way. How'd you feel about uh, Randall? Uh, how do you feel about Randall pulling that off? And also how great is it to have a defensive backfield that is feeling themselves, that is confident in what they're doing and seems to be playing well with each other? Let me just start out by saying that this weekend on November the 25th, the, uh, the new Browns uh, were born and it started, <laughs> and it started with Ooh. Demarius Randall handing the ball off to Hugh Jackson 
and us winning that game. I, it, that had to be hands down probably the number one moment for me as a fan since the return. I, I thought about it long and hard before this podcast and just everything about that moment. Um, yeah, easily that my, my, my favorite moment since the return. I just, we talk about it on, on the podcast multiple times, just the brand of football, especially on the defensive side. It, it has started with, with Randall. I think, and, and Peppers. Uh, we don't talk about Peppers enough, but the stuff he does on defense, um, it, it's, again, he, he's made some phenomenal plays for this team down the stretch. He made some phenomenal plays for the team on Sunday. He continues to show up week in and week out. Randall continues to show up week in and week out. He's a ball hawk, as they say. Um, always finds a way to, 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 to get to the ball. And doesn't I miss really, tackles. Doesn't miss tackles. You're right. He, he, he's a solid tackler and – there's just when you know the back half or, or the, the back two guys in your defense are reliable to your point, John, that they're not going to miss tackles, that they're going to find a way to get to the ball. They're going to cause turnovers and they have a confidence about them. It, it it's it's infectious. It's contagious even. Um, <laughs> and it's it's been a, it's been a joy to watch. And, and I, I really feel like, you know, the Browns fans out there that, that, that haven't got on the Julius Pepper, sorry, Julius Peppers, uh, the Jabril Peppers uh, train. Need, I do that all on. the time. I do that I know, all, all the time. time those all the time. Um, they, they need to get on the train, man. He's he's a legitimate star in this league. And I don't care where he went to school. He's in our team now. And I fell in love with him even more this weekend. I think on Monday in his uh, in his interview, he's like, you know, we're tired of being disrespected. I, I come back to this, and I'm sure you guys will, will will know what movie it is. But attitude reflects leadership, and as soon as the, the the leadership on this team changed, our attitude changed, and it started with Baker Mayfield, started with Randall, started with all these guys on the field, and it's th- this vibe that we've got is 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 fantastic. Uh, I, I look forward to you know to seeing where it goes, and and these guys. Uh, again, the, the the back the back part of our defense really needs a lot of a lot more love than they're getting. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I actually watched most of the interview that they had with Jabril Peppers. Uh, don't don't call me Julius Peppers uh, post game. And I love that he was smiling. I love that he was talking about Randall's pick uh, in that like he could have had a pick six, but he chose to do this. They're all very entertained. They're all feeling themselves. There's a swag there, right? And I appreciate that there's a swag there. And and you saw that swag play out over the next two days as the team took to the uh, social media and took to the airwaves to, to tell the, the world how they felt and why uh, there was all this animosity towards Hugh Jackson. And the rest of the world did not like hearing it. The rest of the world uh, did not really, well, I don't want to say everyone, uh, but, but a, a, a sizable population thought that uh, given that the Browns fired Hugh Jackson, that the players on this team who played for him this year uh, are, are no longer allowed to make any comments about it. Do you feel like that's kind of a fair representation from the media or do you feel that the media is kind of misrepresenting the situation in Cleveland and that Baker Mayfield should have every right along with the rest of the players to kind of speak how they feel? Well, I'll tell you how I feel. And that's that uh, part of this is painted by uh, the hand of Hugh Jackson, who has hands in the media, who has leaked things to the media, has friends in the media, Um, you know, and there is a tendency to treat players a little differently than they treat coaches when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, there was no word. There was nobody – well, I wouldn't say there's nobody, but there was very few people really calling out Hugh for his media tour, uh, which yeah. is totally unheard of. All right? Nobody does that. I've been watching football forever. I've never seen a coach uh, after the season, let alone flipping midseason, go and do a freaking media tour – about 
the job he just had. Um, so like nobody said any word about that, but then to, uh, you know, and this is a guy who, uh, had the nickname Teflon Hugh. I mean, he was known <laughs> for, you know, expertly deflecting any types of blame. You know, I, I, I can't say, you know, I'm going to use rumors here, but you know, there, there, we'd heard that he had completely disconnected himself from the offensive room so that in the event that Todd failed, he could come in and, uh, scapegoat him and there's rumors that there's people that said that Todd almost got fired in September well let me tell you if, if Todd almost got fired in September that wasn't coming from the owners the Haslam's weren't going to come down and fire a guy three weeks into his tenure as an offensive coordinator you know if he was going to get fired it was being lobbied for and that was going to be by Hugh so you know that like this whole like thing of criticizing Baker uh, for speaking his mind I mean I, I agree that I would say that I had no problem with what he said in the press conference. I would say I hope that he grows out of responding to the media like first take, like he did on Instagram. Like that's the kind of stuff where that's what they fry, that's what they thrive on. You know, that's uh, and if you feed the troll, then they're going to keep coming back. And so, like that's the kind of stuff I would say Baker should stop responding to idiots like that because they're just going to keep coming and it's not going to be worth his time or the attention that he gets. So, uh, but you know, I, I don't have any problem with what he said. I said at the time that um, I'm sure many of those players thought it was a low blow. Look, I'm not going to, you know, say that Hugh shouldn't grab any job that he can get, but for a team that just watched their head coach go across a little bit down South to a team that you're going to play twice in the next six weeks for you to think that like, there's no bad blood. Yeah. It might not have been publicized, but it was there. It was going to be there. And so what? So it's a little publicized this time. I don't understand why everybody thinks that's no big deal. I I get that he was fired and he is allowed to do whatever he wants, but the optics on that of I'm literally going to go coach the team that's playing the team that I've been a head coach for, for three years while getting paid by Haslam. Yeah. Like you can, everyone's like, you can go whatever you want. You like, that's absolutely true. And I don't think anybody on the Browns is wishing that they had held on to him for an extra couple weeks so that it couldn't happen, but it's still shady. It still is a messed up thing to do. And the, I think the players has ever have every right to say, I wish you wouldn't have done that. I wish you could have waited five weeks while you're still getting paid and then go do whatever you need to do. As we bring in a new coach, as we install new systems, like the biggest reason why Hugh is there is because he's buddies with Marvin, and that's totally chill. That's totally fine. But also because he has the Browns playbook, because he is the number one person who can help them get ready for this game. And to suggest that uh, there's anything more to this than that is is ridiculous. The players had their say about it. I love that they had their say about it. I have no problems with with Baker clapping back uh, at the media about it, but you do make a good point when you say that there are going to be trolls out there that are just looking for a reason to rile them up just to be able to get a quote out of him. And I'm hoping that as he's around for a couple of years that he kind of gets that out of his system a little bit. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the coaches. Uh, we're going to dive into this uh, with a little bit greater detail. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick break here for our sponsor. Thanks for uh, hanging in with us here. This is the This Believe Land is Your Land podcast with John Colosimo, Mike Krupka, and myself, Josh Finney. Uh, so on the rumors of uh, coaches and what coaches are doing and why they're doing it, uh, we, we received some, some juicy tidbits today. Uh, while everyone was feeling very good about themselves in Cleveland Browns land, we uh, got a rumor floated by uh, Benjamin Albright, who, who said that Browns fans would be best served 
by watching the last five games that the Green Bay Packers had to play if they want to kind of get a clue about what may be coming down the road. And that got me thinking, you know, everybody has best case scenarios. Everyone's got their kind of middle of the road scenarios and everyone's got their, I want to jump out of a uh, car at 80 miles an hour on the freeway examples. So we're going to call this the uh, flip kill Mary section uh, for, for head coaching rumors and candidates. Um, we'll let you do the, uh, do the math as to why we're calling it that. Uh, for me, I've got a couple names that, that, that I'm into marrying. I've got a couple names that I want to kill or kill myself rather than deal with the reality <laughs> of. Uh, and a couple that I'd like to, uh, you know, uh, John, I want your, I want your take. Who are your, your, your three. So I think, uh, if I'm going with my lip candidates, I'm going to go with Riley. Okay. <laughs> uh, if I'm going with my Mary candidate, I'm, I'm dealing with a uh, flip <laughs> as it were. Uh, and, uh, if I'm going to kill a candidate, it's going to be Mike F.M. McCarthy, all right, because it just shows an awful amount of nepotism. Uh, th- there's no way to make that hire make sense other than they're buddies, they're familiar, and uh, they know what they're getting. So it's almost like a the devil you know type scenario there. And uh, I, it, it, I, I've been searching since I, I was tweeting about this earlier for the right verb. <laughs> to describe my feelings about a McCarthy hire uh, and it's some kind of combination of disgust, um, embarrassment and anger. So, uh, there's brown man. So uh, an interesting side note to, to that, I think part of the reason that Mr. Albright is under the impression that, and I don't mean to put words in his mouth, but I think that one of the reasons that he's under the impression that McCarthy is going to be under consideration by the Browns is that he is getting? He may be getting rumors uh, that the Browns are looking for a more established coaching name. That they're not looking for uh, a Greenfield, somebody who doesn't have any experience head coaching in the NFL. Because he did uh, mention earlier in the day that Lincoln Riley was not going to be an option for the Browns, or that he didn't feel that Lincoln Riley was going to be an option for the Browns. Which, which again, these are just hunches and just rumors. And we are a long ways away from the team uh, even setting their short list of candidates for who they would want to have involved. Uh, but that that may have something to do with it. Uh, Mike, who are you flipping? Who are you killing? And who are you marrying? And this is this is a tough one because John kind of uh, hit on the the guy I'd like to to flip, and that would be to be Riley. Um, if and, and it's been documented on the podcast that I do like uh, Coach Flip as an option, um, but for for just for sake of conversation, um, I'd be interested in taking a look at uh, at, at I think it's top. Is it Taub or Tube? Taub. Um, yeah, I think I think he'd be an interesting candidate to look at for 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 marrying. Um, if we can kind of also flesh out any sort of motivation slash health health concerns, do it. I know, I know, I know, I, <laughs> I know. I've talked uh, against it, but given the options that we're looking at with McCarthy, I'd much rather marry Bruce Arians than, than McCarthy. So I'm going to go ahead and, and, and kill McCarthy as well. Um, I've talked about not wanting uh, coach McDaniels again, another guy I'd preferably kill. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where my list is at right now. I don't think you guys know how this game is played. Like you're marrying your second choice. Like marrying is the one that you want to have and to hold for the next <laughs> 20 years. Like you guys know that that's the rules, right? Like you, you you're, you're flipping, Somebody that is like, all right, for right now, okay, like they're they're hot, but like it's probably not a great long term option. But 
Do you guys know how marriage works? Mm, yeah, I guess I had that a uh, little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as far as I'm concerned, Mike actually hit on the name that I would like to shoot in the sun. I won't say McCarthy because that's clearly at the bottom of everyone's list. But for me, Josh Daniels is or McDaniels is the last guy I want in Cleveland. If just if nothing else, then because guys who come out of the Bill Belichick coaching tree, and I hate to draw sweeping generalizations for these guys. I understand that they're all individuals. But the pattern that you see with these guys is that the one thing that they pick up from Belichick is that they are going to be the dictator of their new franchise. They're going to control every aspect of it that they can. We saw it with Mangini here in Cleveland. We saw it with uh, McDaniels when he was out in Denver. Time and time again, we see these guys leave. Bill O'Brien down in Texas, we see these guys leave and ultimately power struggles with the, uh, the, the, the loudest voices in the room from the team and the players and with the general manager and the owners come out. And it just turns into a big power struggle. Cleveland is enormously susceptible to that, especially because of this dopey reporting structure that Haslam insists on. The last thing I want in place is anybody who is going to not be able to work with Dorsey or not be able to work with Mayfield. You're going to have to have somebody who is a skilled negotiator, somebody who's going to be able to navigate the personalities in the room. It's one of those things like you see with NBA coaches where one of the job rec, uh, requirements for guys who are coming to Cleveland is that you're going to have to find somebody who's willing to be a team player. We can't have another instance of, of uh, people fighting and jockeying for position with the owner. And I think that we – should be in a good place with that. I don't think that Dorsey's going to hire someone who he doesn't feel uh, he can uh, trust and who he can uh, work with. But I want to make sure that that's clear. So I'll, I'll have uh, Josh McDaniels as my kill. Uh, I, I will also put Bruce, Mar Bruce Arians into this group, but he is my, my, my flip, my flip candidate. He is a great plan C. And I think everyone's comfortable with that. If, if all of the best and the brightest are out there and you have a guy who is not going to rock the boat, he's already said, I'm willing to keep Kitchens in here. I like what I have with him, whether he is the OC or whether he continues to uh, be heavily involved as an assistant coach, help, help scheme the offense around. Um, he's a guy that you know has success at this level. You know he's familiar with Cleveland. You know he's familiar with Ben in this division. He has all of the boxes checked. The reason that people don't like Bruce Arians is because he's super old. It's because they don't feel like he's an offensive innovator, that he's going to run more of a Coriel scheme. He's going to do some of the things that drove us crazy about Hugh. And because he, he quit on the last team, and they don't know that, that he's going to be in it for the long haul. But otherwise, qualification-wise, Bruce Arians is fine. He's a good guy, and he wants this job. He wanted this job in 2012, or whenever it was that he ended up going to Arizona. When he was leaving Indy, he said publicly that this was a job that he was interested in. They just couldn't make it happen. So – um, I know that shouldn't matter. Wanting to be here um, shouldn't be the number one criteria that makes uh, people acceptable for the job, but it's a hell of a start. It's a hell of a good place to start. Um, and as far as my Mary candidate, uh, the guy that hasn't been talked about a lot, but I love is uh, Eric Bieniemy. He is the offensive coordinator for the Kansas city chiefs. I would love, love to poach that guy. We talked about it a little bit on the Cincy jungle podcast. I think that uh, it's really difficult to pull out, the influence that Reed has on the offense versus Eric. But all that being said, I think that he knows what he's looking at. I think he knows what he wants to do. I think that that Kansas city offense is going to be perfect for what they want to do going down the road with Baker. And I think that you have a much better success rate. I, I hate to use this as a criteria, but I think you have a much better success rate with guys who are coming out of that system than almost anybody else's um, in the, uh, in the modern NFL. So uh, later on this week, in the meantime, uh, I just want to thank my co-hosts again, John, Mike. It is always a pleasure. 
getting together with you guys, talking some Browns shop. This was a this is a fun week and a fun era to be a Browns fan. I'm looking forward to to more of this and the next five games is going to feature some some really fun and interesting stuff. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies, like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.